Story 10 of Fevers and Physicians In Space Ed Reed Shot Sci-Fi, Volume 2 Contagion by Catherine McLean, Part 2 Reno was pleased. He had dabbled in sociology before retraining as a mechanic for the expedition. This gives me a chance to study their moors, he winked wickedly. I may not be back for several nights. They watched through the viewplate as he took off, and then went over to the laboratory for a look at the hamsters. Three were alive and healthy, munching lettuce. One was the control. The other two had been given shots of Pat's blood from before he entered the ship, but with no additional treatment. Apparently a hamster could fight off melting sickness easily if left alone. Three were still feverish and ruffled, with a low red blood count, but recovering. The three dead ones had been given strong shots of adaptive and counterhistamine, so their bodies had not fought back against the attack. June glanced at the dead animals hastily and looked away again. They lay twisted with a strange semi-fluid limpness, as if ready to dissolve. The last hamster, which had been given the heaviest dose of adaptive, had apparently lost all its hair before death. It was hairless and pink, like a stillborn baby. We can find no microorganisms, George Barton said. None at all. Nothing in the body that should not be there. Leucosis and anemia, fever only for the ones that fought it off. He handed Max some temperature charts and graphs of blood counts. June wandered out into the hall. Pediatrics and obstetrics were her field. She left the cellular research to Max and just helped him with laboratory routine. A strange mood followed her out into the hall, then abruptly lightened. Coming toward her, busily telling a tale of adventure to the gorgeous Shirley Davenport, was a tall, red-headed, magnificently handsome man. It was his handsomeness which made Pat such a pleasure to look upon and talk with, she guiltily told herself, and it was his tremendous vitality. It was like meeting a movie hero in the flesh, or a hero to the pages of a book. Dear Slayer, John Clayton, Lord Greystoke. She waited in the doorway to the laboratory, and made no move to join them, merely acknowledged the two with a nod and a smile, and a casual lift of the hand. They nodded and smiled back. Hello, June, said Pat, and continued telling his tale, but as they passed, he lightly touched her arm. Oh, pioneer, she said mockingly and softly to his passing profile, and knew that he had heard. At night she had a nightmare. She was running down a long corridor looking for Max, but every man she came to was a big bronze man with red hair and bright blue eyes who grinned at her, the pink hamster. She woke suddenly, feeling as if alarm bells had been ringing, and listened carefully. There was no sound. She had had a nightmare, she told herself, but alarm bells were still ringing in her unconscious. Something was wrong. Lying still and trying to preserve the images, she groped for a meaning, but the mood faded under the cold touch of reason. Damn intuitive thinking. A pink hamster. Why did the unconscious have to be so vague? She fell asleep again and forgot. They had lunch with Pat Mead that day, and after it was over, Pat delayed June with a hand on her shoulder and looked down at her for a moment. I want you, June, he said, and then turned away, answering the hails of a party at another table as if he had not spoken. She stood shaken, and then walked to the door where Max waited. She was particularly affectionate with Max the rest of the day, and it pleased him. It would not have been if he had known why. She tried to forget Pat's blunt statement. 
June was in the laboratory with Max, watching the growth of a small tank culture of the alien protoplasm from a Minos weed, and listening to Len Marlowe pour out his troubles. And Elsa tags around after that big goof all day listening to his stories, and then she tells me I'm just jealous, I'm imagining things. He passed his hand across his eyes. I came away from Earth to be with Elsie. I'm getting a headache. Look, can't you persuade Pat to cut it out, June? You and Max are his friends. Here, have an aspirin, June said. We'll see what we can do. Thanks. Len picked up his tank culture and went out. Not at all. Cheered. Max sat brooding over the dials and meters at his end of the laboratory, apparently sunk in thought. When Len had gone, he spoke almost harshly. Why encourage the guy? Why let him help? Found out anything about the differences in protoplasm? She evaded. Why let him kill himself? What chance has he got against that hunk of muscle and smooth talk? But Pat isn't after Elsie, she protested. Every scatterbrained woman on the ship is trailing after Pat, with her tongue hanging out. Brand St. Clair is in the bar right now. He doesn't say what he is drinking about. But do you think Pat is resisting all these women crowding down on him? There are other things besides looks and charm, she said, grimly trying to concentrate on a slide under her binocular microscope. Yeah, and whatever they are, Pat has them too. Who's more competent to support a woman and a family on a frontier planet than a handsome bruiser who was born here? I meant, June spun around on her stool with unexpected passion. There is old friendship, and there is fondness, and memories, and loyalty. She was half shouting. They're not worth much in the second-hand market, Max said. He was sitting slumped on his lap stool, looking dully at his dials. Now I'm getting a headache, he smiled ruefully. No kidding, a real headache. And over other people's troubles yet. Other people's troubles. She got out and wandered out into the long, curving halls. I want you, June. Pat's voice repeated in her mind. Why did the man have to be so overpoweringly attractive, so glaring a contrast to Max? Why couldn't the universe manage to run on without generating troublesome love triangles? She walked up the curving ramps to the dining hall, where they had eaten and drunk and talked yesterday. It was empty except for one couple talking forehead to forehead over cold coffee. She turned and wandered down the long, easy spiral of corridor to the pharmacy and dispensary. It was empty. George was probably in the test lab next door, where he could hear if he was wanted. The automatic vendor of harmless euphorics, stimulants and opiates stood in the corner, brightly decorated in pastel abstract designs, with an automatic tabulator graph glowing above it. Max had a headache, she remembered. She recorded her thumbprint in the machine and pushed the plunger for a box of aspirins trying to focus her attention on the problem of adapting the people of the ship to the planet Minos. An aquarium tank with a faint solution of histamine would be enough to convert a piece of human skin into a community of voracious active phagocytes, eventually seeking something to devour. But could they eat enough to live away from the rich, sustaining plasma of human blood? After the aspirins, she pushed another plunger for something for herself. Then she stood looking at it, a small box, with three pills in her hand. Theobromine, a heart strengthener, and a confidence-giving euphoric all in one. Something to steady shaky nerves. She had used it before only in emergency. She extended a hand and looked at it. She was trembling. And triangles. While she was looking at her hand, there was a click from the automatic drug vendor. 
It summed the morning use of each drug in the vendors throughout the ship, and recorded it in a neat addition to the end of each graph line. For a moment he could not find the green line for anodynes and the red line for stimulants, and then she saw that they went almost straight up. There were too many being used, far too many to be explained by jealousy or psychosomatic peevishness. This was an epidemic, and only one disease was possible. The disinfecting of Pat had not succeeded. Nuclear catacurial, killer of all infections, had not cured. Pat had brought melting sickness into the ship with him. Who had it? The drug's vendor glowed cheerfully and communicative. She opened a panel in its side and looked on in restless interlacing cogs, and on the inside of the door saw printed some directions. To remove or examine records before reaching end of the reel, after a few fumbling minutes she had the answer. In the cafeteria at breakfast and lunch, thirty-eight men out of the forty-eight aboard ship had taken more than his norm of stimulant. Twenty-one had taken aspirin as well. The only woman who had made an unusual purchase was herself. He remembered the hamsters that had thrown off the infection with a short, sharp fever, and checked back in the records to the day before. There was a short rise in aspirin sales to women at late afternoon. The women were safe. It was the men who had melting sickness. Melting sickness killed in hours, according to Pat Mead. How long had the men been sick? As she was leaving, Jerry came into the pharmacy, recorded his thumbprint, and took a box of aspirin from the machine. She felt all right. Self-control was working well, and it was pleasant still to walk down the corridor, smiling at the people who passed. She took the emergency elevator to the control room, and showed her credentials to the technician on watch. Medical emergency! At a small control panel in the corner was a large red button, precisely labelled. She considered it, and picked up the control room phone. This was the hard part, telling someone, especially someone who had it, Max. She dialed, and when the click on the end of the line showed he had picked the phone up, she told Max what she had seen. No women, just the men, he repeated. That right? Yes. Probably it's chemically alien, inhibited by one of the female sex hormones. We'll try sex hormone shots if we have to. Where are you calling from? She told him. That's right. Give nuclear cat Curiel another chance. It might work this time. Push that button. She went to the panel and pushed the large red button. Through the long height of the explorer, bells walked to life and began to ring in a frightened clangor. Emergency doors thumped shut. Mechanical apparatus hummed into life, and canned voices began to give rapid, urgent directions. A plague had come. She obeyed the mechanical orders, went out into the hall and walked in line with the others. The captain walked ahead of her, and the gorgeous Shelley Davenport fell in step beside her. I look like a positive ag this morning. Does that mean I'm sick? Are we all sick? June shrugged, unwilling to say what she knew. Others came out of the rooms into the corridor, thickening the line. They could hear each room lock as the last person left it, and then, faintly, the hiss of disinfectant spray. Behind them, on the heels of the last person in line, segments of the ship slammed off and began to hiss. They wound down the spiral corridor until they reached the medical treatment section again and there they waited in line. It won't scar my arms, will it? Hush, asked Sheila apprehensively, glancing at her smooth, lovely arms. A mechanical voice said, Next, step inside, please, and stand clear of the door. Not a bit, 
June reassured Shelley, and stepped into the cubicle. Inside, she was directed from cubicle to cubicle, and given the usual buffeting by sprays and radiation, had blood samples taken, and was injected with nuclear cat and a series of other protectives. At last, she was directed through another door, into a tiny cubicle with a chair. You are to wait here, commanded the recorded voice, metallically. In twenty minutes, the door will unlock and you may then leave. All people now treated may visit all parts of the ship which have been protected. It is forbidden to visit any quarantined or unsterile part of the ship without permission from the medical officers. Presently the door unlocked and she emerged into bright lights again, feeling slightly battered. She was in the clinic. A few men sat on the edge of beds and looked sick. One was lying down. Brant and Beth Sinclair sat near each other, not speaking. Approaching her was George Barton, reading a thermometer with a puzzled expression. What is it, George? she asked anxiously. Some of the women have slight fever, but it's going down. None of the fellows have any, but their white count is way up, their red count is way down, and they look sick to me. She approached Sinclair. His usual ruddy cheeks were pale, his pulse was light and too fast, and his skin felt clammy. How's the headache? Did the nuclear cat treatment help? We feel worse, if anything. Better set up beds, she told George. Get everyone back into the clinic. We're doing that, George assured her. That's what Hal is doing. She went back to the laboratory. Max was pacing up and down, absently running his hands through his black hair until it stood straight up. He stopped when he saw her face and scowled thoughtfully. They're still sick? It was more a statement than a question. She nodded. The cure-all didn't cure this time, he muttered. That leaves it up to us. We have melting sickness, and according to Pat and Hamsters, that leaves us less than a day to find out what it is, and learn how to stop it. Suddenly an idea for another test struck him, and he moved to the work table to set it up. He worked rapidly, with an occasional uncoordinated movement, betraying his usual efficiency. It was strange to see Max troubled and afraid. She put on a laboratory smock and began to work. She worked in silence. The mechanicals had failed. Hal and George Barton were busy staving off death from the weaker cases and trying to gain time for Max and her to work. The problem of the plague had to be solved by the two of them alone. It was in their hands. Another test. No results. Max's hands were shaking, and he stopped a moment to take stimulants. She went into the ward for a moment, found Bess, and warned her quietly to tell the other women to be ready to take over if the men became too sick to go on. But tell them calmly. They don't want to frighten the men. She lingered in the ward long enough to see the word spread among the women in a widening wave of paler faces and compressed lips. Then she went back to the laboratory. Another test. There was no sign of a microorganism in anyone's blood, merely a growing horde of leukocytes and phagocytes, prowling as if mobilized to repel invasion. Len Marlowe was wheeled in unconscious, with Hal Barton's written comments and conclusions pinned to the blanket. I don't feel so well myself, the assistant complained. The air feels thick. I can't breathe. June saw that his lips were blue. Oxygen shot, she told Max. Low red corpuscle count, Max answered. Look into a drop and see what's going on. Use mine. I feel the same way he does. She took two drops of Max's blood. Count was low, falling too fast. Breathing is useless without the proper minimum of red corpuscles in the blood. 
People below that minimum die of asphyxiation, although their lungs are full of pure air. The red corpuscle count was falling too fast. The time she and Max had to work in was too short. Pump some more CO2 into the air system, Max said urgently over the phone. Get some into the men's end of the ward. She looked through the microscope at the live sample of blood. It was a dark, clear field, and bright, moving things spun and swirled through it, but you could see nothing that did not belong there. Hal, Max called over the general speaker system. Cut the other treatments. Check for accelerating anemia. Treat it like monoxide poisoning, CO2 and oxygen. She reached into a cupboard under the work table, located two cylinders of oxygen, cracked the valves and handed one to Max and one to the assistant. Some of the bluish tint left the assistant's face as he breathed, and he went over to the patient with reawakened concern. Not breathing! Doc! Max was working at the desk, muttering equations of hemoglobin catalysis. Lens gone, Doc, the assistant said more loudly. Artificial respiration, and get him into a regeneration tank, said June, not moving from the microscope. Hurry! Hal will show you how. The oxidation and mechanical heart action in the tank will keep him going. But anyone in a tank who seems to be dying, get some women to help you. Give them Hal's instructions. The tanks were ordinarily used to suspend animation in a nutrient bath during the regrowth of any diseased organ. It could preserve life in an almost totally destroyed body during the usual disintegration and regrowth treatments for cancer and old age, and it could encourage healing as destruction continued, but they could not prevent ultimate death as long as the disease was not conquered. The drop of blood in June's microscope was a great dark field, and in the foreground brought to gargantuan solidity by the stereo effect, drifted neat saucer shapes of red blood cells. They turned end for end, floating by the humped misty mass of a leukocyte which was crawling on the cover glass. There were not enough red corpuscles, and she felt that they grew fewer as she watched. She fixed her eye on one, not blinking, in fear that she would miss what might happen. It was a tidy red button, and it spun as it drifted, the current moving it aside in a curve as it passed by the leukocyte, then abruptly the cell vanished. June stared numbly at the place where it had been. Behind her, Max was calling over the speaker system again. Dr. Stark speaking. Any technician who knows anything about the life tanks, start bringing more out of storage and set them up. Emergency! We may need forty-seven, June said quietly. We may need forty-seven, Max repeated to the ship in general. His voice did not falter. Set them up along the corridor, hook them in on extension lines. His voice filtered back from the empty floors above in a series of dim echoes. What he had said meant that every man on board might be on the point of heart stoppage. June looked blindly through the binocular microscope, trying to think. Out of the corner of her eyes, she could see that Max was wavering and breathing more and more frequently of the pure, cold, burning oxygen of the cylinders. In the microscope, she could see that there were fewer red cells left alive in the drop of his blood. The rate of fall was accelerating. She didn't have to glance at Max to know how he would look, skin pale, black eyebrows and keen brown eyes slightly squinted in thought, a faint ironical grin twisting the bluing lips. Intelligent, thin, sensitive, his face was part of her mind. It was inconceivable that Max could die. He couldn't die. He couldn't leave her alone. She forced her mind back to the problem. All the men of the Explorer were at the same point, wherever they were. 
Moving to Max's desk, he spoke into the intercom system. Bess, send a couple of women to look through the ship, room by room with a stretcher. Make sure all the men are down here. She remembered Reno. Sparks, heard anything from Reno? Is he back? Sparks replied weakly after a lag. Last I heard from Reno was a call this morning. He was raving about mirrors, and Pat Mead's folks are not being real people, just carbon copies and claiming he was crazy, and I should send him the psychiatrist. I thought he was kidding. He didn't call back. Thanks, Sparks. Reno was lost. Max dialed and spoke to the bridge over the phone. Are you okay up there? Forget about engineering controls. Drop everything and head for the tanks where you can still walk. June went back to the work table and whispered into her own phone. Bess, send up a stretcher for Max. He looks pretty bad. There had to be a solution. The life tanks could sustain life in a damaged body, encouraging it to regrow more rapidly. But they merely slowed death, as long as the disease was not checked. The postponement could not last long, for destruction could go on steadily in the tanks until the nutritive solution would hold no life except the triumphant microscopic killers that caused melting sickness. There were very few red blood corpuscles in the microscope field now, incredibly few. She tipped the microscope, and they began to drift, spinning slowly. A lone corpuscle floated through the center. She watched it as the current swept it in an arc past the dim, off-focus bulk of the leukocyte. There was a sweep of motion, and it vanished. For a moment it meant nothing to her. Then she lifted her head from the microscope and looked around. Max sat at his desk, head in hand, his rumpled short black hair sticking out beneath his fingers at odd angles. A pencil and a pad, scrawled with formulas, lay on the desk before him. She could see his concentration in the rigid set of his shoulders. He was still thinking. He had not given up. Max, I just saw a leukocyte grab a red blood corpuscle. It was unbelievably fast. Leukemia, muttered Max without moving. Galloping leukemia yet. It comes under the heading of cancer. Well, that's part of the answer. It might be all we need, he grinned feebly and reached for the speaker set. Anybody still on his feet in there? He muttered into it, and the question was amplified to a booming voice throughout the ship. Hal, you're still going. Look, Hal, change the dolls, set them to deep melt and regeneration. One week. This is like leukemia, got it? This is like leukemia. June rose. It was time for her to take over the job. She leaned across his desk and spoke into the speaker's system. Dr. Walton talking, she said. This is to the women. Don't let any of the men work any more. They'll kill themselves. See that they all go into the tanks right away. Set the tank dial for deep regeneration. You can see how from the ones that are set. Two exhausted and frightened women clattered in the doorway with the stretcher. Their hands were scratched and oily from helping to set up tanks. That order includes you, she told Max sternly, and caught him as he swayed. Max saw the stretcher-bearers and struggled upright. Ten more minutes, he said clearly. I think of an idea. Something not right in this setup. I have to figure how to prevent a relapse. How the thing started. He knew more bacteriology than she did. She had to help him think. She motioned the bearers to wait, fixed a breathing mask for Max from a cylinder of CO2, and the opened one of oxygen. Max went back to his desk. She walked up and down, trying to think remembering the hamsters. The melting sickness, it was called. Melting. She struggled with an impulse to open a tank which held one of the men. He wanted to look in, see if that would explain the name. Melting sickness. 
Footsteps came, and Pat Mead stood uncertainly in the doorway, tall, handsome, rugged, a pioneer. Anything I can do? he asked. She barely looked at him. You stay out of the way, we're busy. I'd like to help, he said. Very funny. She was vicious, enjoying the whip of her words. Every man is dying because you're a carrier, and you want to help? He stood nervously, clenching and unclenching his hands. A guinea pig, maybe. I'm immune, all the meads are. Go away! God, why couldn't she think? What makes a mead immune? Oh, let him alone, Max muttered. Pat hasn't done anything. He went waveringly to the microscope, took a tiny sliver from his finger, suspended it in a slide, and slipped it under the lens, with detached, habitual dexterity. Something funny going on, he said to June. Symptoms don't feel right. After a moment, he straightened and motioned for her to look. Vagocytes, vagocytes, he was bewildered. My own. She looked in, and then looked back at Pat in a growing wave of horror. They're not your own, Max, she whispered. Max rested a hand on the table to brace himself, put his eye to the microscope, and looked again. June knew what he saw. Phagocytes, leukocytes, attacking and devouring his tissues in a growing, incredible horde, multiplying insanely. Not his phagocytes, Pat Mead's. The Mead's evolved cells had learned too much. They were contagious, and not Pat Mead's. How much alike were the Mead's? Mead cells, contagious from one to another, not a disease attacking or being fought, but acting as normal leukocytes in whatever body they were in. The leukocytes of tall, red-headed people, finding no strangeness in the bloodstream of any of the tall, red-headed people. No strangeness. A totipotent leukocyte finding its way into cellular wombs the womb-like life tanks, for the men of the explorer, a week's cure with deep melting to de-differentiate the leukocytes and turn them back to normal tissue, then regrowth and reforming from the cells that were there, from the cells that were there, from the cells that were there. Pat! Pat! I know. Pat began to laugh, his face twisted with sudden understanding. I understand. I get it. I'm a contagious personality. It's funny, isn't it? Max rose suddenly from the microscope and lurched toward him, fists clenched. Pat caught him as he fell, and the bewildered stretcher-bearers carried him out to the tanks. For a week, June tended the tanks. The other women volunteered to help, but she refused. She said nothing, hoping her guess would not be true. Is everything all right? Elsie asked her anxiously. How is Jerry coming along? Elsie looked haggard and worn, like all the women. I'm doing the work that the men had always done. He's fine, June said tonelessly, shutting tight the door of the tank room. They're all fine. That's good, Elsie said, but she looked more frightened than before. June firmly locked the tank room door, and the girl went away. The other women had been listening, and now they wandered back to their jobs, unsatisfied by June's answer, but not daring to ask for the actual truth. They were there whenever June went into the tank room, and they were still there, or relieved by others, June was not sure, when she came out. And always, some of them asked the unvarying question for all the others, and June gave the unvarying answer. But she kept the key. Then the day of completion came. June told no one of the hour. She went into the room, as on the other days, locked the door behind her, and there was the nightmare again. This time, it was reality and she wandered down a path between long rows of coffin-like tanks, calling 
Max, Max, silently, and looking into each one as it opened. But each face she looked at was the same, watching them dissolve and regrow in the nutrient solution. She had only been able to guess the horror of what was happening. Now she knew. They were all the same lean-boned, blonde-skinned face, with a pin-feather growth of reddish down on cheeks and scalp, all horribly and handsomely the same. A medical kit lay carelessly on the floor beside Max's tank. She stood near the bag. Max, she said, and found her throat closing. The canned voice of the mechanical marked her, speaking glibly about waking and sitting up. Sorry, Max. The tall man with rugged features and bright blue eyes sat up sleepily and lifted an eyebrow at her and ran his hand over his red-fuzzed head in a gesture of bewilderment. What's the matter, Jean? he asked drowsily. She gripped his arm. Max! He compared the relative size of his arm and her hand and said wonderingly, You shrink. I know, Max, I know. He turned his head and looked at his arms and legs, pale blonde arms and legs with a down of red hair. He touched the thick left arm, squeezed a pinch of hard flesh. It isn't mine, he said, surprised, but I can feel it. Watching his face was like watching a stranger mimicking and distorting Max's expressions. Max in fear, Max trying to understand what had happened to him, looking around at the other men sitting up in their tanks, Max feeling the terror that was in herself and all the men as they stared at themselves and their friends and saw what they had become. We're all bad made, he said harshly. All the maids are bad made. That's why he was surprised to see people who didn't look like himself. Yes, Max. Max, he repeated. It's me, all right. The nervous system didn't change. His new blue eyes held hers. My love didn't either. Did yours? Did it, June? No, Max. But she couldn't know yet. She had loved Max with a thin, ironic face, the rumpled black hair, and the twisted smile that never really hid his quick sympathy. Now he was Pat Mead. Could he also be Max? Of course I still love you, darling. He grinned. It was still the wry smile of Max, though fitting strangely on the handsome, new, bland face. Then it isn't so bad. It might even be pretty good. I envied him, this big, muscular body. If Pat or any of these maids so much as looks at you, I'm going to knock his block off, understand? She laughed and couldn't stop. It wasn't that funny. But it was still Max, trying to be unafraid, drawing on humour. Maybe the rest of the men would also be their old selves, enough so the women would not feel that the men were strangers. Behind her, male voices spoke characteristically. She didn't have to turn to know which was which. This is one way to keep a guy from stealing your girl. That was Len Marlowe. I've got to write down all my reactions, Hal Britton. Now I can really work that hillside vein of metal, St. Clair. Then others complaining, swearing, laughing bitterly at the trick that had been played on them, and their flirting, tempted women. She knew who they were. Their women would know them apart, too. We'll go outside, Max said. You and I. Maybe the shock won't be so bad to the women after they see me. He paused. You didn't tell them, did you? I couldn't. I wasn't sure. I was... I... was hoping I was wrong. She opened the door and closed it quickly. There was a small crowd on the other side. Hello, Pat, 
Elsie said uncertainly, trying to look past them into the tank room before the door shut. I'm not Pat, I'm Max, said the tall man with the blue eyes and the fuzz-ridden skull. Listen. Good heavens, Pat, what happened to your hair? Shelley asked. I'm Max, insisted the man with the handsome face and the sharp blue eyes. Don't you get it? I'm Max Stark. The melting sickness is mead cells. We caught them from Pat. They adapted us to Minos. They also changed us all into Pat Mead. Women stared at him, at each other. They shook their heads. They don't understand, June said. They couldn't have. I couldn't have if I hadn't seen it happening, Max. It's Pat, said Shelley, dazedly stubborn. He shaved off his hair. It's some kind of joke. Max shook her shoulders, glaring down at her face. I'm Max. Max Stark. They all look like me. Do you hear? It's funny, but it's not a joke. Laugh at us, for God's sake. It's too much, said June. They'll have to see. She opened the door and let them in. They hurried past her to the tanks, looking at forty-six identical blonde faces, beginning to call in frightened voices. Jerry! Harry! Lee, where are you, sweetheart? June shut the door on the voices that were growing hysterical, the women terrified and helpless, the men shouting to let the women know who they were. It isn't easy, said Max, looking down at his own thick muscles. But you aren't changed and the girls aren't. That helps. Through the muffled noise and hysteria, a bell was ringing. It's the airlock, June said. Peering in the viewplate were nine meads from Alexandria. To all appearances, eight of them were Pat Mead at various ages, from fifteen to fifty, and the other was a handsome, leggy, red-headed girl who could have been his sister. Regretfully, they explained to the voice tube that they had walked over from Alexandria to bring news that the plane pilot had contracted melting sickness there and had died. They wanted to come in. June and Max told them to wait and returned to the tank room. The men were enjoying their new height and strength, and the women were bewilderedly learning that they could tell one pat meat from another by voice, by gesture of face or hand. Panic was gone. In its place was a dull acceptance of the fantastic situation. Max called for attention. There are nine Meads outside who want to come in. They have different names, but they're all Pat Mead. They frowned or looked blank, and George Barton asked, Why didn't you let them in? I don't see any problem. One of them, said Max soberly, is a girl, Patricia Mead. The girl wants to come in. There was a long silence, while the implication settled to the fear centre of the women's minds. Shelia, the beautiful, felt it first. She cried, no, please don't let her in. There was real fright in her tone, and the women caught it quickly. Elsie clung to Jerry, begging. You don't want me to change, do you, Jerry? You like me the way I am. Tell me you do. The other girls backed away. It was illogical, but it was human. June felt terror rising in herself. She held up her hand for quiet and presented the necessity to the group. Only half of us can leave Minos, she said. The men cannot eat ship food. They've been conditioned to this planet. We women can go, but we would have to go without our men. We can't go outside without contagion, and we can't spend the rest of our lives in quarantine inside the ship. George Barton is right. There is no problem. But we'd be changed, Shelia shrilled. I don't want to become a maid. I don't want to be somebody else. She ran to the inner wall of the corridor. There was a brief hesitation, 
and then one by one the women fled to that side, until there were only Bess, June, and four others left. See! cried Shelley. A vote! We can't let the girl in! No one spoke. To change, to be someone else, the idea was strange and horrifying. The men stared uneasily glancing at each other, as if looking into mirrors, and against the wall of the corridor the women watched in fear and huddled together, staring at the men. One man in forty-seven poses. One of them made a beseeching move toward Elsie, and she shrank away. No, Jerry, I won't let you change me. Max stirred restlessly. The ironic smile that made his new face his own, unconsciously twisting into a grimace of pity. We men can't leave, and you women can't stay, he said bluntly. Why not let Patricia Mead in? Get it over with. June took a small mirror from her belt pouch and studied her own face, aware of Max talking forcefully, the men standing silent, the women pleading. Her face, her own face, with its dark blue eyes, small nose, long mobile lips. The mind and the body are inseparable. The shape of a face is part of the mind. He put the mirror back. I'll kill myself, Shelia said. Shelia was sobbing. I'd rather die. You won't die, Max was saying. Can't you see there's only one solution? They were looking at Max. June stepped silently out of the tank room and then turned and went to the airlock. She opened the valves that would let in Pat Mead's sister. <laughs>